Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, March 7th, 2023, the 776th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple of days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So today I want to discuss this point we find ourselves at in the narrative cycle once again, where all of a sudden we are getting new, exciting, revelatory, eye-opening news along a whole bunch of different verticals in the narrative. We are seeing new stuff about Ukraine and the Nord Stream pipeline and January 6th, Antifa, Twitter files, COVID, 
All of these big stories that we've been tracking for years now, there have been new revelations along all of those lines in the past few weeks. But none of these revelations so far are making it toward the end point of any of these narratives as we know them already and as we can be certain they will continue to develop. We're not at the end. We're just reaching new waypoints as the narrative develops. And it's important that we see it that way and not get confused that we have now reached the end of these particular stories, because what we're getting down all these verticals is a series of limited hangouts. And I've talked about limited hangouts a bunch of times on the show, but if you're not familiar with the concept, this is what Wikipedia has to say about limited hangouts. A limited hangout or a partial hangout is a tactic used in media relations, perception management, politics, and information management. The tactic originated as a technique in the espionage trade. According to Victor Marchetti, a former special assistant to the deputy director of the CIA, a limited hangout is, quote, spy jargon for a favorite and frequently used gimmick of the clandestine professionals. When their veil of secrecy is shredded and they can no longer rely on a phony cover story to misinform the public, they resort to admitting, sometimes even volunteering, some of the truth while managing to withhold the key and damaging facts in the case. The public, however, is usually so intrigued by the new information that it never thinks to pursue the matter further. While used by the CIA and other intelligence organizations, the tactic has become popularized in the corporate and political spheres. And that's what we're seeing as these narratives fall apart. When you see a limited hangout, you should see that cover-up operation in progress. But what you should realize is that they are now attempting to defend a fallback position. It is a sign of retreat on some level. The reason this tactic has always been so effective is that they make a big deal, a big public display of the limited hangout and all the people that were upset about the issue because they knew what really happened. They get really excited about the limited hangout because to some degree they've been now proven right. And then in the past, a lot of the time people would understand that to be the end of the story. People would accept the new position and then encourage everybody to move on. Okay, you guys were right a little bit, but not the whole thing. You definitely didn't have the whole thing right, but you were right about this. So just take that win and let's all move on and let's never, ever talk about this situation ever again. And we've seen that countless times in COVID and we're seeing it again right now as the lab leak theory was pushed out again and reconfirmed on some level and to make it clear to the public that there is now nothing else to see here, they will still push the old story of the natural origin, keeping the two of those options in balance and never allowing anyone to pursue a third option. Talked about this a little bit last week and the chances that the virus that originated in Wuhan, the pandemic outbreak location, may not actually be a result of research done in Wuhan or the manipulation of a virus that happened in Wuhan. There are other places that people believe COVID originated from. And then there's the possibility somewhere down the line that the public will understand COVID wasn't a virus, in quotes, in the first place. 
and that it was something else. And there's virtually no one pursuing those possibilities, at least in the public eye. We had the Project Veritas release from Major Murphy a year and a half ago, talking about how what was being studied in the Wuhan lab was actually a bat coronavirus vaccine. And we shouldn't forget that as far as anyone knows, the coronavirus only exists and can be identified as the product of computer modeling. So there are still many steps down that trail before we really know fully what was going on there. What we can dismiss automatically is that some virus originated in a bat in a cave and then ended up in a wet market and then infected the world. That's just silly. But some people have gotten pretty upset about this Wuhan lab leak story being the end point of this narrative because they're concerned that this will actually be the end point, that people will just give up and leave this alone and say, hey, it came from the Chinese lab. We blame China. It wasn't our fault. It wasn't anybody else's fault. It was China. It was the CCP. They poisoned the world. We need reparations from China. If we go to war over Taiwan, well, that's justified because they brought the pandemic upon the world. And knowing that they may well use this narrative to push for a war over the imminent Chinese invasion of Taiwan, there's good reason to be concerned about letting the narrative end here, letting the pursuit of the COVID origins end here, because it shouldn't end here. And I think that those concerns would normally be justified, but I think maybe we have to look at this period as something else and see this as something other than a narrative endpoint and rather just as a narrative pause, which I want to make clear is not something to be thrilled about. It's only something to understand. It seems to me at least to be pretty clear at this point that what we're watching is the rollout of a long-term information op, an information strategy, a tactical release of information pursuing a larger strategy in the information war. There is a timing and a process to these things and to what we're seeing. And we have to understand that that's happening. I've talked many times about how all of these little stories that intersect the central narrative, they keep cycling around every few days, sometimes few weeks, few months, even sometimes a couple of years. The narratives wind in and wind out and they come back to the public's attention and then they go away again for a little while and they come back again. And every time they come back around, new layers are added onto the story. Those layers bring new disclosure, which brings new understanding and more people wake up to the truth about all of these individual issues. So we've got all of these separate stories cycling over and over again throughout the central narrative, all these narratives growing and becoming more detailed and revelatory external to the central narrative. They reach a certain point and they break through into the central narrative. The central narrative is forced to incorporate these new story elements for a brief amount of time until people lose attention or until the media believes that they have actually covered this up or distracted 
from these new revelations completely. The issue then fades from view and it comes back into view over a series of following revelations. We've seen this time and time again, and we don't have to like it. We don't have to be satisfied with the narrative pacing, the pacing of public disclosure and public recognition and understanding. It can never happen fast enough. It's frustrating for me, just as it's frustrating for all of you, but it's also worth understanding. And hey, if you think my explanation is completely wrong, that's just fine. Because I'm not advocating for anything different in terms of our behavior. If we understand the narrative and the facts are advanced beyond where the public narrative is and where the narrative pacing is leading us, it's still our responsibility to push that information out there and try to accelerate the pacing of that narrative. That's true whether or not I'm right. But if I'm right and you agree with me, It's possible that you will be less frustrated by all of this if you're understanding this process and you can at least understand the pacing and that that pacing is leading to continued unstoppable progress. And if you accept that view, then these limited hangouts don't seem so much strategic for the side of the regime, the people trying to protect these narratives from the truth, they read more like narrative pausing. We're just stopping here for a little while so that people can catch up because they need to understand the entirety of the story and how we got here rather than just be told the end of the story and tell them to adjust. Now, I don't love that. And I also find it a bit patronizing to people, to be honest. I think that people should be told the truth directly all the time, and we should allow them to react however they must react. But this isn't about me, and this isn't about our interpersonal relationships with one individual. This is, from a macro perspective, based on how a society is going to collectively wake up at once without everybody immediately trying to destroy one another. And on that view, it's possible that these narrative pauses are necessary. Again, I don't love it. I'd love all the information to be out there at once. But at the same time, I do believe that this is a very high level information op being run in a very high level information war. And what I care about is winning. I care about progress. I care about the fact that we will reach the end point. Not that we are not at the end point now. And so what I think we're seeing on some level is a series of limited hangouts that are not designed to cover for the regime and protect the regime, but rather designed to align with the narrative pacing as the whole society wakes up. And I know what the retort to this is, okay? And I completely get it and understand There are actual stakes attached to the truth of all these stories, and there are real consequences for the full truth not being exposed immediately. And I think this is a position that my record certainly agrees with. I'm not by nature a particularly patient person. I've thought the evidence on all of these issues has been overwhelming for a long time. And that evidence should be fully pushed forward. Action should be taken relying on that evidence 
because the stakes are that high. But from the other perspective, the stakes are not high in relation to the stakes of the overall project. The overall project must succeed in order for us to still have a country and move forward as a country. These problems are not immediately solvable in the short term without potentially risking that long term success. So as frustrating as it is, we cannot just get deflated and demoralized because things aren't happening enough. Things still are happening. We can see advancement on all of these lines. And so, again, we don't have to fully accept this. We should still work to advance all of these narratives as quickly as possible and get the truth out as quickly as possible. But there's some advantage to keeping our eyes on the bigger prize and see these efforts as reaching certain waypoints rather than being stopped at a particular point along the line. Because None of these narratives have gotten stopped. The truth is being pushed into the mainstream every day down all of these different verticals. And that is really, really important. The thing we should look for and the distinction we need to make when judging these things is between who is helping us in reaching these different waypoints as opposed to the people who upon reaching these waypoints then begin to gatekeep and tell people they're crazy for continuing to push further. And so I want to keep that in mind as we discuss some of these stories today. And before we get into stuff that is more directly related to that, I just want to update one of the things we left off with yesterday. Donald Trump demanded on Truth Social that Republican governors immediately withdraw their states from the ERIC voter registration system. We've talked extensively about Eric and about the problem of registering all of these voters around the nation, putting them in this nationwide database and then being able to use this voter registration database to support the creation of fraudulent votes in our elections. So Trump demanded that states move away from this Eric system. And within an hour or so after Trump's statement, We hear that Florida has withdrawn from participation, as have Missouri and West Virginia. So great timing, Mr. President. And I wanted to quickly highlight this story as well. This is from Human Events yesterday. An SPLC lawyer was just charged with domestic terrorism. The anti-hate org is now completely discredited. The Southern Poverty Law Center holds itself up as a catalyst for justice. They claim to monitor hate groups and other extremists throughout the United States and expose their activities to the public, the media and law enforcement. But now one of their own attorneys has been arrested as part of an Antifa action against a future training facility for the Atlanta police. The SPLC is a far left group spouting off propaganda to support ideology, not justice. They harbor violent extremists among their ranks while accusing others of doing the exact same thing that they are doing themselves. Their activist employees cozy up to Antifa accounts on Twitter, play at being reporters while really being agitators, and one of their lawyers is accused of committing an act of domestic terrorism. How can the SPLC rectify its mission of exposing extremists to law enforcement with the fact that one of its own attorneys is among those arrested for violently targeting law enforcement sites. The fact is it can't. 
The SPLC, which began in 1971 as part of the civil rights movement, has morphed into an extremist organization dedicated to propagating leftist lies about Americans, Americans' religious beliefs, and dissidents to the progressive cause. And they do it under the cover of a mission dedicated to exposing that which they actually endorse. Antifa militants have been targeting it for months, and on Sunday, the construction of Atlanta's future public safety training facility, called Cop City, was attacked by Antifa-affiliated leftists with at least one construction vehicle torched. Thomas Jurgens, 28, lists himself as a staff attorney for the SPLC and was among those 23 arrested for taking part in the mayhem the group that claims to monitor the activities of domestic hate groups and other extremists, including the KKK, the neo-Nazi movement, neo-Confederates, racist skinheads, anti-government militias, Christian identity adherents, and others, has on their own staff a man suspected of firebombing a police facility. And Jurgens isn't the only one to find himself straddling both a responsibility to seek justice and truth with an apparent desire to cause destruction and chaos by targeting law enforcement. Another suspect is an attorney with the National Lawyers Guild. These attorneys attend protests alongside activists and demonstrators to observe the proceedings. They are easily identifiable by the green caps they wear and could be seen in video of what unfolded in Atlanta. James Jamie Marsicano of Charlotte, North Carolina, is a trans activist and member of the National Lawyers Guild. Post-millennial senior editor Andy No reports, a far-left legal group that provides free legal aid to far-left violent extremists. Some of them in their green hat uniforms were captured on security cameras moving in and out with the violent mob. Marsicano is studying at the University of North Carolina School of Law. Recently, it was revealed that the FBI was using an SPLC list of Christian groups to target Christians as domestic extremists. The idea behind the FBI bulletin was that Catholics who prefer traditional Latin mass, which went out of favor with the church after the secularist reforms of Vatican II, are white supremacist anti LGBTQ hate groups. That bulletin cited articles from the SPLC, as well as the SPLC's list of radical traditional Catholicism hate groups. The whistleblower who exposed this bulletin revealed that agents, quote, got briefings that SPLC was not legitimate, end quote, as part of their training at Quantico. Yet taking their lead from the SPLC, the FBI used a citizen's Catholic faith as a litmus test for their political ideology and the likelihood of being a public threat. The SPLC has a history of going after people who are neither hateful nor extremists, but simply disagree with the SPLC. In June 2018, they had to publicly apologize to Majid Nawaz and the Quilliam Foundation for defaming them as anti-Muslim extremists. The SPLC had to fork over $3.365 million to Nawaz. Nathan J. Robinson wrote that the organization has long been dysfunctional and that the SPLC has displayed, quote, some of the worst and most hypocritical tendencies in American liberalism. The Southern Poverty Law Center was once a respected civil rights organization, the Alliance Defending Freedom said, but noted that it has degenerated into a discredited and scandal-ridden group that one of its own employees described as a highly profitable scam. After winning some important cases, the SPLC devolved into a fear-mongering, money-raising machine. The arrest of an SPLC attorney for committing the same kinds of acts of violence that they claim to oppose shows that it is a group that harbors extremists under the guise of rooting out extremism. 
Any claims they may have had on objectivity have been thoroughly discredited. The SPLC responded to the arrest, saying, quote, an employee at the SPLC was arrested while acting and identifying as a legal observer on behalf of the National Lawyers Guild. The employee is an experienced legal observer, and their arrest is not evidence of any crime, but of heavy handed law enforcement intervention against protesters. This is part of a months long escalation of policing tactics against protesters and observers who oppose the destruction of the Wilani forest to build a police training facility. The SPLC has and will continue to urge de-escalation of violence and police use of force against black, brown and indigenous communities working in partnership with these communities to dismantle white supremacy, strengthen intersectional movements and advance the human rights of all people. So the SPLC lawyer was just there to watch what happened so that he could advocate for the domestic violent extremists in the event that they are arrested and prosecuted. It's important to have a lawyer on the ground watching and he's not involved whatsoever. And that's why he's wearing a green hat. If you're wearing a green hat, you can't be in trouble because you're just actually there to help. And the truth is that all of Antifa are just there to help. Sure, they blew things up, but they're just trying to save the forest from these police officers on behalf of black, brown and indigenous people. And so if you don't like what Antifa's doing and if you don't like the fact that this anti extremist organization has its own employees there working as lawyers to advocate on behalf of the domestic violent extremists, while well, you hate the earth and you're racist. And because that's true, saying anything bad about the Southern Poverty Law Center is also anti-Earth and racist. And even talking about this issue in the first place is anti-Earth and racist. If you actually weren't anti-Earth and racist, you would be supporting all of them. You would want them all to be wearing their little green hats as cloaks of protection and invisibility. Well, hey, Southern Poverty Law Center. What if I want to wear a red hat? Do I receive a get out of jail free card too? Now let's talk about the media a little bit. This clip is from the reporter Ivory Hecker's podcast and the guest is the CNN whistleblower, Carrie Porch. This is from a couple of weeks back. First job was boots on ground in Charlottesville after the riots happened at the University of Virginia. And even though I was not a fan of Trump and Republicans in general, I saw the president, uh, the then president, say they're good people on both sides, but not the neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and they should be disavowed totally. Like, I saw that boots on ground, but what did I see when I got back to the office? It's the whole good people on both sides cut. The fallacy that even Joe Biden put on his uh, coming out campaign ad is those missing extra three seconds of very powerful context. And I just started to notice things like that over and over, and it was a really hard thing for me to stomach and, and swallow that this great venerable news network that I grew up loving is not quite what it seemed to be. And the more and more I dug and the deeper and deeper I pulled on that thread, the more and more I found. And I literally had my own matrix moment. It's overplayed and cliche, but it truly is. You know, I had a choice to make. Do I want to take the red pill and really see how deep the rabbit hole goes? Or do I want to stick my head back in the sand and just do business as usual? 
So just a little reminder that the propaganda media is lying and they know it. That Charlottesville event was five and a half years ago, and there are still plenty of Biden voters who believe that Trump said there are very fine people on both sides and was referring to the neo-Nazis and white supremacists, even though he specifically said he was not referring to them and they should be condemned completely. The crazy thing is that when you show them this, it doesn't change their opinion about his remarks. They think that he still meant the thing they believe he said, even though he said the opposite thing. That's what it means to exist in that false reality. And let's stick with CNN for a second. This is the New York Post yesterday. CNN ex-boss Jeff Zucker told staff not to probe lab leak theory because it was Trump talking point. CNN's then president Jeff Zucker told his staffers not to investigate the lab leak theory behind the origins of COVID-19 because he thought it was a Trump talking point, according to a report. A well-placed CNN insider told Fox News Digital on Monday that Zucker gave the order in the early months of the coronavirus pandemic. People are slowly waking up from the fog, the insider told Fox News Digital. It is kind of crazy that we didn't chase it harder. Mainstream news organizations, including CNN, The New York Times, MSNBC and others, have been pilloried in recent days following a recent government report that concluded that an accidental leak from a Chinese laboratory is the most likely explanation for the covid outbreak. In the initial weeks and months of the pandemic, prominent media personalities, public health officials and elected officials from the Democratic Party dismissed the lab leak theory as debunked, with some suggesting it was racist to even discuss the topic. The Post has sought comment from CNN and Zucker. One of Zucker's charges who followed through on his boss's reported edict was Oliver Darcy, the network's media reporter, who wrote an item in the initial days of the pandemic titled, Here's how to debunk coronavirus misinformation and conspiracy theories from friends and family. While the coronavirus pandemic has isolated family and friends inside their homes, it has in many cases increased online or over the phone communication with loved ones, Darcy wrote on March 28, 2020. But in some cases, relatives and friends share poor information, whether it is bad science related to how to prevent the virus, debunked rumors about cities being put on lockdown or conspiracy theories about the origins of COVID-19, he wrote. While any strain of misinformation is not ideal, misinformation related to a public health crisis has an especially dangerous element to it. Fareed Zakaria host of CNN's Fareed Zakaria GPS, said during a broadcast that the far right has now found its own virus conspiracy theory when discussing the lab leak. Last week, Tom Elliott, an independent journalist, posted a Twitter thread showing clips of MSNBC and CNN personalities dismissing the possibility of the lab leak as a conspiracy theory. Under Zucker's watch, CNN became the news network that took the most adversarial stance toward then-President Donald Trump. During news conferences, Trump famously sparred with CNN correspondents, particularly Jim Acosta, the combative White House reporter. Last year, Zucker was forced to resign as CNN president after it was learned he had been carrying on a consensual, years-long relationship with his top marketing officer, Allison Gullist. Zucker has been replaced by Chris Licht, who was given a mandate by his bosses 
at corporate giant Warner Brothers Discovery to steer the network away from partisan commentary and towards straight down the middle news reporting. And quite obviously, they're not there yet. This is from yesterday in just the news. Oops, I did it again. Establishment media forced into major recent retractions. Establishment media outlets, including NPR and The Washington Post, have been forced to issue major retractions in recent days, correcting misreporting on matters ranging from FBI whistleblowers to how President Joe Biden's son, Bo Biden, died. NPR was forced to issue a correction Saturday to clarify that Bo Biden died from brain cancer in 2015, not from injuries he received while stationed with the military in Iraq and Afghanistan, as stated in the original report. The public outlet is not the only source to misrepresent Bo Biden's death. The president himself has previously claimed that his son died in Iraq, not from cancer. And Joe Biden does seem particularly confused these days. He's repeated that story over and over again. And yesterday he said this. And I had uh, these terrible headaches, was diagnosed with having a, a uh, anyway, they had to take the top of my head off a couple of times, <laughs> see if I had a brain. I was diagnosed with a, well, anyway, they had to take the top of my head off a couple of times to see if I had a brain. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the fake president of the United States. If he said something insightful, it would only be by accident. But back to the article. NPR also walked back a claim in an article last month headlined, Speaker McCarthy leads first border trip in his new role. Critics call it a photo op. The piece inaccurately reported that no Democrats attended a hearing at a Texas border town, bolstering critics' claims that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other Republicans were using the border visit to generate media coverage. In fact, some Democrats attended, NPR later clarified. The New York Times, Washington Post, and Rolling Stone all issued corrections to articles over the weekend about a Democrat House Judiciary Committee report criticizing Republican whistleblowers and GOP-led House investigations. The Times admitted Saturday it had incorrectly stated that FBI whistleblower Stephen Friend worked for the Center for Renewing America, largely funded by former President Donald Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows Conservative Partnership Institute, in an article headlined GOP witnesses paid by Trump ally embraced January 6th conspiracy theories. The Times issued a correction stating the center is affiliated with the Institute and sustained mostly by donations. It is not largely funded by the Institute. Rolling Stone corrected an inaccurate claim regarding former FBI analyst George Hill, whose attorney Jason Foster says retired from the agency on good terms. Rolling Stone reported originally that Hill's FBI security clearance had been revoked when in fact it was in good standing. The magazine said it mistook Hill for another whistleblower, Steve Friend, whose clearance had been suspended for a review but not revoked either. This story has been corrected to reflect the fact that Stephen Friend's security clearance was suspended and George Hill retired of his own volition, Rolling Stone stated. Obviously, they couldn't keep the details of George Hill's and Stephen Friend's cases straight, Foster tweeted. So they just blended them together with some fiction out of thin air about how Hill had to retire because his clearance was revoked and he couldn't find work anymore. Rolling Stone has been called out before for media ethics issues. And the article goes on. The mainstream media is in terrible shape right now. 
They are printing and publishing and broadcasting false information, doing it knowingly. And those false narratives have begun falling apart faster and faster. I discussed this at length after the Mar-a-Lago raid when we were told that some far-right extremist was attacking an FBI field office with a nail gun because we were told that any dissent from the official Mar-a-Lago raid narrative was going to cause a violent response against law enforcement by MAGA extremists who were very upset that Donald Trump had been raided. That whole story about the nail gun attacker fell apart before the end of the day. And not too long after that, we had the story about how Russian missiles had actually landed in Poland. They were trying to create a reaction for Article 5 of the NATO treaty to get the rest of NATO involved in going after Russia for this new act of war. It just turned out that none of that was true. They were Ukrainian rockets. Russia had absolutely nothing to do with it. And once again, the narrative was destroyed the same day. But the media hasn't stopped lying. And of course, they can't stop lying. If they stopped lying, the entire thing would fall apart. So now they're being forced to operate in this post-reputational world where they are still printing the same sort of fake news while knowing that most of the public is not going to believe it at all. They still target the same people with the fake news because they know that those people will still respond emotionally. They will still go online believing that they have found the new story that's going to get everyone back on their side. They've finally got the narrative. They've finally got Trump. The walls are closing in. And they're more than prepared to continue marching forward in the hate movement, calling everyone else stupid and believing that the mainstream media are still a collection of authoritative sources representing the voice of experts and scientists and all of the oracles out there in the party of false decorum disseminating the slogans for the masses so they can continue to push back and defend the central narrative from the truth and the people pushing it. But now it's reaching the most preposterous and obvious and in many ways funniest point of this entire effort. As you all know, Tucker Carlson last night began releasing some of the January 6th footage that people haven't seen yet. This footage that was handed over to Tucker by Kevin McCarthy, Tucker's team of producers, was allowed access to this footage we are told, and Tucker has begun to roll it out, last night being the first night. I would encourage everyone to watch Tucker's broadcast last night or see some of the clips, see for yourself what some of this footage shows, because it shows what we've seen and what we've known for the entire time. In the days after January 6th, we got all sorts of video showing people just peacefully walking through the Capitol showing cops letting people in through the doors, showing cops escorting people through the buildings, and in discussions with people like the quote-unquote QAnon shaman Jacob Chansley and the people around him. 
We know there were feds and infiltrators on the ground directing the activity. We know Capitol Police officers were instigating some of the violence and some of the conflict. They were firing smoke grenades and tear gas into the crowd. And we have long known that the video of the actual event, not the edited video or the video put out live during the newscast, showed that the narrative about January 6th was completely and totally false that the January 6th committee, a sham from the beginning because it did not follow normal congressional rules for its initiation in the first place. Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, was not allowed to name Republicans to the committee. The only quote unquote Republicans on that committee were Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. We know they weren't after the truth. We know they had access to all this video and records far beyond this video. They didn't share any of that. They only shared what would make their case stronger, and it still didn't work. And even just one night of Tucker's show combined with this footage has broken this narrative irretrievably. But that's not going to stop them, of course. The media is now in narrative protection mode. This is from this morning on CNN. What to know about the Tucker Carlson January 6th footage? You see that? You have to know things about the footage so that you don't just watch it and think, oh, all the stories I was told were obviously absolutely wrong and couldn't have just been a matter of mistake because so many people already saw this footage that we are now seeing. Fox News host Tucker Carlson aired newly released footage on his show Monday from the January 6th, 2021 U.S. Capitol attack that included images of the rioter known as the QAnon shaman, as well as of Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick, who died following the attack. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy granted Carlson access to more than 40,000 hours of Capitol security footage from January 6th. CNN and other news organizations have also requested access to the security footage. McCarthy's office said it is still working out the process to make the footage more widely available, but did not comment further. Capitol Police have continuously warned that release of all security footage from the Capitol could pose a potential security risk for the building. CNN has reached out to the Capitol Police for comment. And you got to wonder what comment they want after that. They've already gone to the dumbest thing possible that releasing the footage could actually help the planners of a brand new insurrection. But let's jump down to their cover-up attempts. The QAnon shaman's role. Carlson claimed that new Capitol security footage taken on January 6th shows Jacob Chansley, known as the QAnon shaman, walking through the Capitol without pushback from police. In one clip, Chansley is shown with two officers who attempt to open a door near the Senate chamber. In a second clip, Chansley, still flanked by the two original officers, walks between a group of about a half a dozen officers and none appear to try to step in. There's no audio in the videos and it is not clear whether the officers in Chansley are talking to each other. In court documents, however, prosecutors say that Capitol Police officers repeatedly tried to engage with Chansley and others in the crowd, asking them to leave. So you got that? You see the video for yourself where Chansley is being led through the building by the officers, but prosecutors said in their case that the officers tried to engage with Chansley and ask them to leave. That's not what happened 
it's proven on the video. If at some point they asked him to leave, it doesn't really matter because they're escorting him through the video the rest of the time. Prosecutors say that Chansley disobeyed that request and walked to the Senate floor. Videos from that day show the officers following Chansley around the building and an officer walks into the chamber with Chansley and continues to ask rioters to leave. It's funny because even that right there refutes CNN's case. The officers walked in and asked the rioters to leave, except they weren't rioting. They were just in there. There's video that Tucker didn't show last night, but that has been around for a long time where it shows Chandley's friends or associates having polite conversations with the officers saying, we just want to walk around. And the officers saying, yeah, all right, it's either an insurrection or it's not. If it's a violent insurrection, why aren't the police physically removing these people? Additionally, Capitol Police officers have testified at several January 6th trials that after the initial wave of rioters entered the building, they felt outnumbered and were afraid of escalating violence by engaging with the mob. Members of the crowd were therefore able to walk into the building without much or any physical resistance, according to the officers. Chansley pleaded guilty to a felony charge of obstructing the Electoral College proceedings on January 6th and was sentenced to 41 months in prison. So the explanation from the Capitol Police officers is that they thought it would be worse if they engaged these people inside the Capitol. Therefore, they didn't. So what explains the people inside the Capitol leaving? If they were trying to overthrow the government in a very violent insurrection, why did they just leave if the police didn't remove them? One might wonder if they weren't actually trying to overthrow the government or if maybe they responded to Donald Trump's request they go home. How about Brian Sicknick's death? Carlson aired never before seen surveillance footage that he said showed Sicknick, who died one day after the January 6th insurrection. Carlson said he focused on this because Democrats have turned Sicknick into a prop and a martyr by overstating the links between his death and the insurrection. Is CNN trying to imply that that's not Brian Sicknick in the video? Very interesting. Carlson used the new video to try to undermine the known facts surrounding Sicknick's death and to argue that January 6th was less violent and deadly than it has been portrayed. The video shows Sicknick in the crypt of the Capitol appearing to give instructions to some of the nearby rioters who are milling around the area, repeatedly waving his arms. Carlson argued that Sicknick looks healthy and vigorous in the video, and therefore it's hard to imagine that he was severely injured by the rioters or that he died because of the insurrection. On January 6th, Sicknick was attacked with pepper spray and physically fought with members of the mob. An officer testified that she saw Sicknick in significant distress after he was sprayed. He died one day later after suffering a series of strokes. The D.C. medical examiner ruled that he died of natural causes, but said, quote, all that transpired on January 6th played a role in his condition. According to Carlson, the new tape of Sicknick was recorded after he was attacked on the front lines of the Capitol steps earlier in the day. CNN does not have access to the footage and cannot verify Carlson's claims, and it's unclear how Fox News determined that it's Sicknick in the video. The new Sicknick footage does not disprove the medical examiner's conclusion that January 6th influenced Sicknick's death, and it doesn't erase the fact that Trump supporters assaulted Sicknick that day. You got it? So the known facts 
don't change even after seeing that Brian Sicknick is walking around just fine after his supposed attack. And you got to remember, as Tucker also pointed out, the New York Times reported that Brian Sicknick was bludgeoned to death with a fire extinguisher. That's what they went with. The idea that he was pepper sprayed and somehow the pepper spray led to his strokes that caused his death. That was a retreat position. That was a fallback position after the original narrative was taken apart immediately. And CNN isn't mentioning that now. And now, by the way, it's pepper spray. Initially, it was bear spray, which apparently is much more causative of strokes. Two rioters pleaded guilty to crimes related to the pepper spray attack against Sicknick, though neither were accused of killing him. Julian Cotter, who deployed the spray, is currently serving a six-year prison term. His friend George Tenio spent five months in jail and has been released. Sicknick's mother, Gladys Sicknick, previously blamed Trump supporters for his death. In a statement Monday after Carlson's show, the Sicknick family blasted Fox News and argued that the footage shows how he was able to valiantly resume his duties after being attacked by the mob. So apparently Sicknick's family does not doubt that that was Sicknick in the video, even though CNN has been casting doubt on that. Every time the pain of that day seems to have ebbed a bit, organizations like Fox rip our wounds wide open again, and we are frankly sick of it, the Sicknick family said in a statement. Brian Sicknick's ex-girlfriend apparently is now suing for $30 million because the Sicknick family is not yet done participating in the exploitation of Brian Sicknick's death by the January 6th conspiracy theorists and the January 6th committee. It is, in fact, a baseless conspiracy that Trump supporters staged a very violent insurrection. So CNN believes it has just refuted those two stories coming out of Tucker Carlson's show last night with this new video. They have cast small doubts on pieces here and there. They have told people that they shouldn't abandon their original story despite this video. Tucker Carlson is simply using this video to undermine what CNN refers to as known facts about January 6th. You know, the facts we were shown in the January 6th committee's primetime television show about their very serious investigation. Those are the known facts. What's here on video proving all of that completely false and fabricated, those don't count because we already have a set of known facts. And all of the news organizations have gone out seeking comment from rhino Republicans in the Senate and House who will continue to back up the original J6 narrative, despite this new evidence that has now made its way widely throughout the public. But let's get some more reaction. This is the illegitimate Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Last night, millions of Americans tuned in to one of the most shameful hours we have ever seen on cable television. With contempt for the facts, disregard of the risks, and knowing full well he was lying, lying to his audience, Fox News host Tucker Carlson ran a lengthy segment last night arguing the January 6th Capitol attack was not a violent insurrection. By diving deep into the waters of conspiracy and cherry-picking 
from thousands of hours of security footage. Mr. Carlson told the bold-faced lie that the Capitol attack, which we all saw with our own eyes, was somehow not an attack at all. See that? We're the conspiracy theorists again. No matter what, this new footage doesn't prove anything. It just proves that we are still conspiracy theorizing even after the January 6th committee finished its brave and important work, proving once again that the television was right the whole time. After all, as Chuck Schumer says, we all saw it with our own eyes. And again, Biden supporters genuinely still believe this. Same thing as the very fine people on both sides. They saw that clip over and over and over and over and over again without Trump's statement about how neo-Nazis and white supremacists should be condemned completely. That part is gone. Just the cut clip where he talks about very fine people on both sides. They all believe that they've seen Trump's speech with their own eyes, and that is sufficient. They know all they need to know. On January 6th, 2021, people were glued to the television watching the proceedings. We knew that there would be a massive protest. We knew that something was going to happen that day. And what we got was the mainstream media playing the same clips over and over and over again. We were shown the clips that would support the narrative of the very violent insurrection. And those people having watched it that day as it happened, believing that they were seeing a full view of what was happening as it happened, they believe that they have seen everything they need to know about January 6th with their own eyes. And the reports from the committee and from the media and all of the talk about the insurrection all of that is warranted. All of it is justified. All of it is true because it backs up what they saw with their own eyes on that day. Well, hey, commies, we've seen all of this with our own eyes, too. In fact, we've seen much, much more of it with our own eyes than you have. You've seen almost nothing with your own eyes. And we are not doubting that what you saw with your own eyes in some sense happened to the extent that it was caught on film, but after it's been decontextualized and placed into a much different context, it turns out that what they saw with their own eyes is in no way representative of what actually happened. And you can understand that when you add all the rest of the information to those little pieces, the general public was allowed and encouraged to see. They want you to believe your own eyes up to the point of that which they're prepared to show you and absolutely no more because they've determined that it's dangerous for you to know anything more. How dangerous is it? It is historically dangerous. It is one of the most important things to make sure that no one ever knows anything more about because if they know more things, they might get the wrong ideas. And who better to express that then famed propaganda documentarian Ken Burns, whose life's mission seems to be creating a false history of the United States. Santos and others are doing limit our ability to understand who we are and are not inclusive. They're exclusive. They're they're narrowing the focus of what is and isn't American history. It's terrifying. It feels like a Soviet 
system or, you know, the way the Nazis would build a Potemkin village. Tucker Carlson's doing the same thing with the footage from uh, 1-6. It's just uh, a, a kind of rewriting of history at the most dangerous level. It's it's a huge threat to our republic. Isn't that incredible? Tucker Carlson, by disseminating more information about January 6th, so that people can actually understand what happened. He is rewriting history. They're not saying the video's not real. And all Tucker Carlson is doing is showing the video and contextualizing it in relation to the central narrative that was disseminated by people on CNN. And Ken Burns is on CNN talking to Don Lemon and Caitlin Collins and whoever the other person is. But Tucker is rewriting history. This is exactly what I was talking about in the essay I wrote. It's available on the Substack. I'm your moderator.substack.com. It's called The Sides of History. It's about how history is written by the winners and from the perspective of the winners. And when you're able to do that, when you're able to write the history and inform people about their past, and when you're able to give them what's happening right now by being the media, then it's easy to reverse the roles and the responsibility and encourage people to take a different moral meaning from what they're witnessing, from the stories they're being told. They are engaged in the process of constantly writing a false history in real time. The fake news of today is going to be a false history about today 10 years from now, right? If somebody researches back to the news that's coming out today, 10 years from now, what they will find is the fake news and they will believe a false history existed when it did not. That's the reason for the ongoing and constant propaganda of the regime. It disorients you and detaches you from the real world. That is what it is designed to do. Ken Burns is expressing the dismay of the entire regime that their false history is now being corrected to them inside the false reality. Someone else is revising history. Correcting the record now is not actually in service of the truth, in service of presenting a factual picture. Instead, what we have is the regime asserting that The story you've been told is the only story available and the only acceptable story to believe. And they intend to guard that story at all costs. They can't convince you that Tucker is lying. They can't convince you that Tucker is not showing legitimate video. So they're trying to appeal to your sense of what you've known and what you've believed and cement that they want their viewers to hang on to those lies. And I've said this many times before, but the way they treat their audience is actually incredibly cruel. It honestly makes me sad to think about people still believing all of this because it is so destructive and so bad for them. Obviously for our needs, it would be better if everyone just realized they've been lied to the whole time immediately and stop believing all of that. But if you care about any Biden voters out there in the world at all, then purely out of sympathy, you would want the media to stop propagandizing them. Mike Davis from the Article 3 Project touched on another point here 
in a couple of tweets. Biden DOJ attorneys cannot simply tell January 6th defense attorneys to, quote, go to a room in the basement of the Capitol during COVID and watch 44,000 hours of video, end quote, to find any exculpatory evidence on your client. That clearly violates the prosecutor's constitutional duties under Brady. He goes on. Think about this. During COVID, a 1-6 defense attorney, maybe, could go to a Capitol Police room and watch surveillance videos for up to eight hours a day. We don't even know if Chansley's attorney had this option. Up to 40 hours a week, up to 50 weeks a year. So it would take 22 years for the defense attorney to watch all these 44,000 hours of Capitol surveillance videos. After AG Merrick Garland made 1-6 the DOJ's biggest investigation ever and had hundreds of prosecutors and FBI agents working the cases, they didn't disclose this exculpatory evidence to Chansley's attorney. Neither did the January 6th committee with its $18 million budget, 100 staffers in two years of investigation. Before the Biden DOJ pushed the U.S. District Court in D.C. to imprison Jacob Chansley for 51 months and staying silent for nearly one and a half years after Judge Royce Lamberth sentenced Chansley to 41 months in November 2021. This is somehow not a Brady violation. This is somehow acceptable in America. And Cash Patel picks up on the same theme. He wrote on Truth Social, a prosecutor that fails to disclose evidence of innocence, a.k.a. Brady information, violates the Constitution and must be reported to the court for contempt charges. How many DOJ prosecutors will be reported based on January 6th video footage out now? And let's stick on this Brady rule for a minute, because I've been reading Sidney Powell's book, License to Lie. And in the foreword to that book, there is a discussion on the Brady rule. This is written by Alex Kaczynski, who was the chief judge for the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Another important responsibility of prosecutors is to disclose to the defense any exculpatory information of which the government is aware. The Supreme Court announced this as a constitutional requirement in the 1963 case of Brady versus Maryland, and it has confirmed its underlying principles many times since. It may not be obvious to the lay reader why the government must provide the defendant with evidence that may undermine the prosecution, so it's worth a brief explanation. Most fundamental is the fact that the government is not an ordinary litigant whose interest lies in winning at all costs. Rather, the government's legitimate interest lies in convicting only those defendants who are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. If the government has evidence that casts doubt on the defendant's guilt, it has every interest in producing that evidence for the jury to consider in reaching its decision. As the Supreme Court noted in Brady, quote, an inscription on the walls of the Department of Justice states the proposition candidly for the federal domain. The United States wins its point whenever justice is done, its citizens in the courts, end quote. So the idea here is that the United States, the government, when prosecuting a case, should not be seen the same way as a plaintiff in a civil case, for instance, where their goal is to win and the other side's goal is to win. In the United States, there's supposed to be a higher principle at work here, and that's that the government does not convict people who are not guilty. Therefore, because the government has 
and equal responsibility to uphold the law as written fairly on both sides, the government should be disclosing information that might harm its own case to the defendants so that they can present their best possible case because the defendant is still a citizen of the country with rights to a fair process. Beyond this theoretical justification are important practical reasons for the Brady rule. Government agents usually have unimpeded and exclusive access to the crime scene so they can easily remove and conceal evidence that might contradict the prosecution's case. Police also generally talk to witnesses first and can pressure them to change their story to conform to the prosecution's theory of the case. Prosecutors can and often do threaten to charge witnesses as accomplices or co-conspirators if they testify favorably to the defense. As a result, potential exculpatory witnesses invoke the Fifth Amendment to avoid getting themselves into trouble. The government has virtually unhampered control over forensic evidence, as well as its analysis and presentation by experts. Too often, these experts turn out to be sloppy or dishonest. Many defendants have spent long years behind bars because of incompetent or corrupt forensic scientists employed by law enforcement. Many of those convictions could have been avoided if the jury had been shown the evidence casting doubt on the validity of the expert reports. And he goes on. While no one openly disputes the validity of the Brady rule, many prosecutors see it as a thorn in their sides, an obstacle to overcome rather than a welcome responsibility to be scrupulously observed. Prosecutors want to win for all the reasons mentioned by the Center for Prosecutor Integrity report above, and they see Brady as an impediment to obtaining a conviction. While there are certainly many honest and fair-minded prosecutors, a disturbing number fail to disclose exculpatory evidence to the defense. Some prosecutors affirmatively and knowingly conceal it. And so that's what Cash Patel and Mike Davis are talking about. There is exculpatory evidence here that the government has had the entire time, and they have not revealed it to the defendants or their attorneys, even though... It could potentially be fully exculpatory. It simply shows that the government's case against these defendants is false and should end the prosecution right then and there. But they didn't do it because they can't do it. They can't do it because what they're really doing is going after Trump and going after Trump supporters. And that goal to them is higher than the goal of truth. So they ignore the Brady responsibilities. And I hope that Cash Patel is right that those doing that will receive some accountability. The case of Jacob Chansley here is particularly interesting because it's been such a focus. He had the costume on. He had the makeup on. He was easily identifiable as the QAnon shaman, as the media labeled him, and everyone kind of just ran with it. We saw an absolute parallel character in what we were told was the very violent insurrection in Brazil a couple of months ago. But Chansley is interesting in his own right because he was the one who took the selfie with Nancy Pelosi's son-in-law, Michael Voss, on January 6th. And everybody saw that in the aftermath of the event as well. We know Nancy Pelosi's daughter, Alexandra, was there filming a documentary. And we saw pieces of that in the sham January 6th committee's presentations during primetime. We saw Chansley and his associates having totally polite conversations 
with Capitol Police and other law enforcement officers around. We saw him in the Senate chamber yelling, holding the flag up. There were lots of shots of Jacob Chansley that day. We know he's been made an icon of this entire event. And now we've seen him escorted through the building, peacefully led around the building by police officers, not leading him out of the building, not arresting him for trespassing or insurrection, but showing him his way around the building and leading him into different rooms. At some point, you have to wonder if Jacob Chansley was part of their op, the Pelosi op, the Pelosi documentary op. And this is what I was talking about at the beginning of the episode. While it is definitely true that the video we've seen of Jacob Chansley blows up the official narrative, the official story about January 6th as a very violent insurrection to overthrow the government, and that there's something very wrong with the narrative, the legal proceedings, and likely the sentencing of Chansley because of this video, it doesn't mean that we have reached the end of this Chansley story. We have to be able to distinguish between characters in all of this. Not all January 6th detainees or arrestees or even people who have been convicted are the same. If Jacob Chansley is part of the staged drama of January 6th and this fake documentary made by Pelosi's daughter, we need to get to the end of the narrative and find that out. We don't need to immediately jump to Jacob Chansley's defense and say, this man should be let go. And again, to make clear, that does not mean that's true of all the January 6th detainees. And I don't believe that is true. I'm just saying we need to be committed to keeping these things separate in our minds so that we know the truth about each and every one of these things, because we can't assume that this Jacob Chansley character is representative of everyone's situation. This is not a narrative endpoint. It's a narrative waypoint, and we just need to allow for the pause and continue to push forward. As you might imagine, Donald Trump has weighed in on all of this on Truth Social. In one post, he wrote this, let the January 6th prisoners go. They were convicted or are awaiting trial based on a giant lie, a radical left con job. Thank you to Tucker Carlson and Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy for what you both have done. New video footage is irrefutable. He also wrote, Congratulations to Tucker Carlson on one of the biggest scoops as a reporter in U.S. history. The new surveillance footage of the January 6th events sheds an entirely different light on what actually happened. The unselect committee was a giant scam and has now unequivocally been stamped as criminal fabricators of this most important day. Pelosi and McConnell failed on security. The police story is sad and difficult to watch. Trump and most others are totally innocent. Let them go free now. And so my original plan was to follow that with some of the news we're seeing internationally in geopolitics today. There is a new report out from the New York Times that says Ukrainian aligned actors are responsible for the Nord Stream pipeline, but no one Related to Volodymyr Zelensky, it was pro-Ukrainian forces or actors, but it wasn't the good Ukrainians. It was the bad Ukrainians who are also supporting the good Ukrainians, 
which has basically brought the story full circle to Cy Hirsch's conclusion that it was essentially the CIA directing this Ukrainian effort. And of course, we know the CIA has been training and directing Nazi activity for years, but probably for 80 of them. And that reaching this point indicates another narrative waypoint, another narrative pause, but we will push forward. This certainly is not the end of that investigation. I'm going to get more into that tomorrow. Maybe we'll just consider it a part two of this idea of narrative pausing where limited hangouts can actually be seen as effective for our mission while not being remotely satisfying when it comes to the individual issue that we know goes much further on from where we are now. But until then, I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofi. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!